Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the mercy and the grace of the gospel that brings peace. And we ask that you would um, make that happen in our hearts this morning by faith. Make it happen not just in our hearts and our minds, Lord, but make it happen in our lives. Uh, we, we so desperately are crying out for peace, for shalom in our lives, and we know that by your Spirit, uh, that is breaking into this present reality. And so would you, would you change us? Would you mold us? Would you shape us? Would you create in us a clean heart this morning? That we would um, not only believe and trust that the gospel is for us this morning, but that would uh, affect and change all of our life, God. That the death of Christ might be the foundation for our new life in Christ. That we would live in him by faith here this morning. And so we pray, uh, be with us as we come to your word, that it would be alive to us, that it would change us, that it would mold us. Um, not our neighbors, not those people out there, but me, myself, and I, uh, us in the pews here this morning and here at this pulpit. We need you to change us, and we ask you to do that by faith. Uh, be with us now. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. I encourage you to open your Bible to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, or you can have it on your phone. So last Sunday, last Sunday, Father Nate, he will always or very often say something like this, and I love it. I love it every time he says it. I know you just heard this, but as is my practice, I'm going to read the text again. So um, we're going to read the text quite a bit this morning. I'm not immediately going right into the text, um, but I'm getting my introduction from the text. And it comes from verse 1 of chapter 5. And I, and I don't want to be pedantic because many of you have been in the church for your whole life. And you see the word therefore, and then the pastor says, hey, what is, what is therefore, therefore, ha, 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 all right? So that's what we're doing, though. We're, we're going to go back for our introduction here this morning. All right, all right. Are you with me? Romans chapter 5. Many of us are quite familiar. We're quite familiar with this letter to the Romans. So if that's you, I want you to stay with me. I encourage you to attend and pay attention here this morning. Uh, if you're not familiar, we're going we're gonna to stay in the text this morning, and hopefully it's clear to you by the Spirit this morning. But even if you are familiar, you probably haven't read it in a while, so I encourage you to pay attention. Now, I'm, I'm not going to rehearse the whole letter up to the point where we're at in Romans chapter 5, but we cannot begin to understand our reading in Romans 5 if we don't at least look at Romans chapter 4, the immediate context. And so uh, that's where we're going to look at first. Uh, we're going to rehearse a story that Paul gives us in Romans chapter 4. Now, Romans 4 is technically, it's an argument, and it's an argument that begins really at the end of Romans chapter 1. So it's an argument about some objections or else some some questions that the Jewish Christians in Rome were asking of Paul's gospel proclamation. But the argument is a story in Romans chapter 4. It's primarily a story. The people of God have always been saved, Paul says, or else vindicated or justified by God 
not by their performance. This is the story, this is the argument of Romans chapter 4. Or to use the language of Romans 4 that many of us are familiar with, we were justified by faith in God, not by performance. Or else, not by performance of the law. And he goes He goes to Abraham before the giving of the law to make this argument. So in all of Scripture, we have never been, the people of God have never been justified by the performance or else our our performance of the law. So Paul supports his argument by telling the story of Abraham. And he begins in Romans 4 by saying he is our forefather according to the flesh. Paul is writing to God's people, to Jews primarily here. He's exhorting the Jews in the Roman church. And he states the obvious that Abraham is our father. This is maybe one of the central claims of the Jewish faith. Our father over and over again in this chapter at least seven times. And he states a more obvious point than that. He he goes on, he says, Abraham is our father, but not because of the law. Or else, not, not after the law. The law came much later in the story with the people of Israel. So Abraham is not only our father, he is the father of all. And this is a phrase repeated multiple times in Romans 4. So Abraham, the father, our father according to flesh, but not just the father for the nation of Israel. He is the father for all people. All nations will be blessed in Abraham, and not because of biology, Paul says in Romans 4, because of faith. And here's the point. Abraham is the father of all, but he couldn't be the father of all based upon his flesh. And if you know the story, you know why. And we'll rehearse this a little bit more. It had to be. He could only be the father of all based upon faith. Romans chapter 4 and verse 18. Look with me there. In hope, Abraham believed against hope. He trusted God against hope. In hope, against hope. That he should become the father of many nations. So God told Abraham, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you security. Familial security. Generations. I'm going to give you, the patriarch, the deepest longing of your heart. I'm going to make you a proud father of many sons and daughters and for at least 25 years go read this story we're not going to rehearse it all this morning Abraham fought with this promise or else he fought unbelief with belief hope against hope over and over again faith against anti-faith this is the story of Abraham and Sarah they sometimes grasped foolish, foolishly for the promise. They didn't understand quite how God was going to fulfill that through them, but they were hoping. They were putting their faith in the Lord. They believed, and they were hoping against hope. Hope in the flesh, hope in his own strength, was, it, it was all a joke. They laughed at the Lord. It was a laughing matter, if you read the story this, this doesn't work by our flesh. He looked at his body, verse 19, and he laughed at God. He saw Sarah's, Sarah's age and her barrenness, and he was hopeless. He laughed at the promise according to the flesh. He was hoping, in other words, uh, this is what one theologian says, he was hoping in something utterly hopeless. That's another way to say the same thing. In hope, he had faith against hope. 
He was wrestling against this hope in the flesh. So there's, there's, there's two different kinds of hope in Romans chapter 4 in the story of Abraham. And Paul ends chapter 4 by telling the church in Rome that this ancient story of God's hope, his hope that is against our barren hope or else our hopeless hope, it wasn't written down for Abraham, it was written down for you and for me. Verse 24, righteousness will be counted to us, Paul says, based upon this story. Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is familiar language to many of us. So, if you are utterly hopeless this morning, look to Abraham. This is where we begin. This is the story before the text. For decades and decades, our utterly hopeless father Abraham, he hoped against a fleshly hope or else something that he could accomplish in his own flesh through tears and through stupid decisions and with some repentance and more repentance and with bravery against challenge and with laughter and with laughter. It's a good story, but it's summarized in many different ways. And this is my summary of the cry of Abraham. Come on, God, come on. I'm looking at you. My body is wasting away. My wife is beyond the years of bearing children. She's barren. Show up, God. Show up. And Paul says, even the dead have hope. Looking back to this story, even the dead have hope now because Jesus, our Lord, defeated death. So it's not just the barren. It's not those who just hope for offspring or else hope for deliverance in many other desolations in this life. It's the dead. Even the dead have hope because Jesus, our Lord, Paul says, defeated death. He conquered our trespasses. This is how he ends chapter 4. He was raised from death to life to make us righteous. So this is the story. This is the introduction. Therefore, therefore, Turning to our sermon text, there are two paragraphs, and we're going to take them one paragraph at a time, uh, verses 1 through 5 and then verses 6 through 11. How can we actually hope against hope? I think that's the question that Paul is answering. How can we, in light of the cross of Christ and remembering the story of Abraham and Sarah and the barrenness and this, and this faith in God in the midst of of hopelessness, how can we hope against hope? Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained. What have we obtained? Access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice. In hope of the glory of God, verse 3, not only that, not only have we obtained and that we stand and we rejoice, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. 
And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, who has been given to us. So this first paragraph, it begins and ends with passive verbs. So all that means is something that happens to us, something that happens to us that I'm not active in. And in the middle, there's a bunch of active verbs. Okay, so it, it begins with passive, it ends with passive, and there's a lot of active. The, the second paragraph is the reverse of that. It begins with active, it ends with active, and there's a lot of passive in the middle. We'll get to that later. Verse 1, Romans chapter 5. With Abraham's faithful witness to hope, his witness to hope against hope, and with the past and present reality that God has already made you righteous. This is the idea at the beginning. He's already done this. It's in the past, but it is presently a reality in your life not because of any strength in you, but because of faith, like Abraham, because of faith. And because of this, Paul says, you or we have peace right now. Right now, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first step out of our utter hopelessness is peace with God by faith. So th- there's our focus or at least a focused statement here at the beginning, he made peace and we have it now. We have it now. So we'll come back to this more in paragraph two at the very end of the sermon. Okay. Okay, Chris, I agree with you. I, I got it. Uh, peace with God. That good theology. You said the right thing. Okay, I, I can say that too. Peace with God, but I don't feel peace. I don't, I don't have a present experience of peacefulness in my life what is this real peace that you're talking about that might be your question look with me at verse two so through jesus now we're turning to the active there are three active verbs the first two are active um, but it's a past reality that is continuing to be manifest in the presence so here here's the first verb we have obtained so it's looking back we have obtained but it is continuing now we have obtained access by faith into what into this grace into this gift or else this grace that comes from above so paul says we trust that god has given and continues to give us access to be inside to be inside a reality or else inside this grace or the grace of God. This sounds and feels, though. I, I, I want to recognize this. I'm, I want to be clear. It sounds just like good Christian talk. The kind of self-talk that we say, okay, God, I'm in grace. I, uh, God is maybe, he's, he's put me in grace. Okay, I'm going, to say, I'm going to say that over and over again. That's what it sounds like, okay? And it is that on some level. But stay with me. Paul tells the Romans... That this is where, and here's the next verb, we stand. This this is active. We stand in this. Now, I want you to notice, and this goes throughout the rest of this letter, and it's very common in all of the New Testament. Notice that all of these verbs are plural. Now, that could just be that Paul is addressing a church, okay? And it is that. He's, He's addressing us all together 
as individuals, but the reality of our redemption is that it can't happen alone. Over and over again, the plural reminds us that you cannot, when he says we stand, you cannot and you do not stand by yourself. And if you think you can, it won't work out for you. Trust me. So at the beginning, today and in the end of our lives, you are not alone. And if you think you can stand alone, you will fall. Trust me, you will. Your access in other words, to be, to be surrounded or enveloped by the grace of God. You're in this redemption, in the grace of God, it necessarily is experienced with others. So I want to remind us of this reality over and over again. Grace is ours. It's not mine. Hope is a shared hope. It's always a shared hope or else we will be utterly hopeless by ourselves. So Part of the distinction is being made between the hope that is against hope, okay? This is a shared hope, and this is a me, myself, and I hope, okay? I don't have the strength to stand in that grace. No, you don't. No, you, individual Christian, you don't, but you don't stand. We stand. We stand, and we have obtained access to grace together or not at all. Second half of verse 2. And in this, he says, we, it's translated rejoice in the ESV, but it's not the normal word for rejoice. This is boast. The language is of boasting. We boast. In this, standing together in the grace of God, we boast. We boast, not that I can stand alone, not even that we can stand by ourselves or with each other. We boast in hope of the glory of God. Okay, so that's, we boast in hope of the glory of God. Still, what does that mean? That sounds just like Christian talk. Look with me at verse 3. There's more. We boast in, he repeats the word again, we boast in our sufferings. In our sufferings. And this word is, is, it's interesting. I actually didn't know this until studying this text this week. It's translated a lot of different ways. And there's other words we use for suffering. Um, but this one is translated as affliction or else persecutions very often. Persecutions or anguish or burdens or troubles. This is the sufferings. But surprisingly... And you can check my work on this. I think I chased down every usage of the word in the New Testament. Um, as far as I can tell, even in the Gospels, so Jesus is alive, he's doing ministry, even in the Gospels, this word is not used in reference to Jesus Christ. It's only used in reference to the disciples, our persecutions, or else our sufferings. Christ shares in our sufferings. He suffered on our behalf, but that's a different word. It's a different it's in the same group, but it's a different word. So what does it look like to stand together inside the grace of God by faith, according to verse 3? Boasting not about our great accomplishments, we boast in our anguish. Ooh, that's, that, that seems a little bit counterintuitive. We hope against our utter hopelessness when... 
together with the saints of God, standing together, holding one another up inside the grace of God, we boast in our burdens. That's what Paul says. Why? Because boasting in my strength, or else my own uh, self-determination or power in my righteousness, in my uh, personal spiritual disciplines or my devotion, it always leads us to aloneness and usually, almost all the time, pretty quickly into utter hopelessness, into despair. So he says, fix your mind on this. Pay attention, knowing in the midst of your troubles, knowing this, burdens produce endurance you don't produce endurance burdens the troubles the tribulations the trials that you have that have come upon you in this life they produce endurance you do not endure sufferings endure and endurance leads directly to character character is not something that you you produce in yourself and character leads to hope Burdens to endurance to character, which leads to hope. A hope that endures. A hope that makes us the kind of people that can stand with others in the midst of their troubles. Lasting hope can only be found on the other side of suffering. And so I want to I use a little bit of an image for you, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you suffer through this image for a couple of paragraphs here okay i think it's helpful that's why i'm doing it Uh, so imagine imagine your biggest struggle picture that in your mind or else remember the story of that struggle maybe even this morning or else your deepest wound your greatest burden or your anguish or a persecution imagine that it's a brick wall right in front of your face and not a measly Uh, falling down crumbly brick wall, a really strong brick wall, okay? It's right in front of your face. But imagine that everywhere you turn, there's another brick wall. There's another brick wall. It doesn't matter which way you turn, there's another brick wall. So you turn again and again and again because you cannot face the struggle or else the burden or the anguish that's right in front of your face. So we turn away from the wall only to find all the other walls. It's just another burden. We're running away. And eventually, we get back to that first wall again. Okay, stay with me. So we, we, hit the, we hit the struggle, and then we run to a bunch of other struggles. They might be smaller struggles, okay? But eventually, we're going to get back to that big struggle, that one that we're avoiding. We cannot avoid troubles. So sometimes in our own strength, we attempt to climb over the wall. We attempt to climb over this brick wall only to find that when we hit the ground on the other side, there's yet another brick wall in front of us, and now we're too tired because we we just tried in our own strength to climb over this wall behind us. We're too tired to climb over the wall in front of us, and we're exhausted, and so we turn around. We turn around and we say, man, I can't climb over that. I'm going to turn around and go a different direction. And then we hit the same wall we just jumped over. Okay, stay with me in the image. Stay with me. I thought I was over that. I thought I had gotten past that struggle or else that anguish in my life. I thought I had gotten past this thing. I I worked myself over it so I could conquer it. 
And now I've just run right back into the same, same wall. I cannot escape. I'm trapped. I'm utterly hopeless. We cannot avoid troubles. We cannot, in our own strength, continue to jump over anguish. We must face the impenetrable wall right before us. So facing, face to face with our deepest struggle. And we don't do this alone. So in the image, you're not alone. We're all surrounded by these walls together, but you're not alone in this place. You're not dark inside of some big bricked off cell, okay? You are with others. We run straight into the wall. This is what Paul is exhorting us to do. We run into the wall and we knock it to the ground. This, okay, stay with me with the image. I'm going to keep going a little bit. You will be bruised and bloody. It will hurt. But the wall will be in pieces behind you. Not because you avoided it. Not because you tried to conquer it with your own strength or climb over it. And on the other side of the struggle or the persecution or the anguish, not avoiding it but going straight through, you will endure. You will have endured. It will produce endurance. And that endurance will make you, Paul says, into a new person with the character that knows how to face unconquerable walls with courage. This is what he's, he's arguing. Verse 5, it is that hope, the hope that is on the other side of a crushed wall, not one that we've jumped over in our own strength. It's crushed to the ground. That hope does not put us to shame. It doesn't shame us. That is the only kind of hope that does not disappoint. There's another way to translate this phrase. It doesn't, it's a kind of hope that doesn't shame us. It never disappoints. In other words, it's real hope. Why doesn't it disappoint us? Paul goes on to say, because, because God's love, which is underneath us all the time, or in his grace, it's acting upon us even as we struggle hand in hand to face the walls. God pours himself out in us through the Holy Spirit. So in other words, we have in the saints, in, in us, us, by the Spirit, we have infinite power has been given to us to conquer and to crush things that seem unconquerable. Who shall separate us, Paul will say later in this letter, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall persecutions or else sufferings, anguish, troubles, shall distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. None of these things, none of these things can separate us because God's love is poured out in us by the Spirit. Our Almighty God has conquered death and hell and Satan. So what can stand against him? What, what is, it seems insurmountable. And again, don't imagine some theoretical challenge, the one in front of your face. It's depression. It's a struggling relationship. It's, a, it's, a, it's an addiction that you cannot kick. 
What is the insurmountable thing that you've been trying to avoid in your own strength? Or you're running to other things and you keep coming back to it and running into it over and over again. Face it. But don't face it by yourself. And ultimately, it's not just the strength of the collective. It's not just, hey, we can all do this. We all have, if we put all our power into it together, we can conquer this wall. No, we will all hit the wall and fall flat on our face if that is the power in which we are approaching the challenge. The God who conquered death and hell and Satan, he has empowered us to face our suffering our tribulations, and this, this is the life of hope against hope. It's maybe not what we expected. Who is this hope for? Continuing in verse 6, the second paragraph. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved. Shall we be saved by his life? And more than that, even more, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So who is this hope? that can withstand our hopelessness? Who is this lasting hope of God for? It's for the weak and the ungodly, for sinners, for enemies. It's for you. It's for me. Paul says, if we are in Christ now, if we are not alone, if we stand together in the redemption that he accomplished for us, We were weak. We were weak. And more than that, we were ungodly, not simply powerless. We were against God. We were against God in our own sin. But even more than that, we were not simply ungodly. We were enemies of God. We fought back against him, mocking him and spitting at him. And God gave himself not for the cleaned up version of ourselves. Don't tarry until you're better. We sang that last week. We're not singing that this week. God gave himself not for a righteous person, not for a good person. He demonstrated his love for you in your filth and in your rebellion. He saved you. He reconciled you. You're not alone. We were weak. Again, hear the language again. We were weak, but against all hope, We are no longer powerless. We stand and we endure together. We were ungodly, but inside the grace of God, as one, we now throw down the weapons of the devil, the great enemy and tyrant. We throw down all of our 
are weapons of warfare against the Lord, and together we have peace with God. What kind of peace? Origen says peace, the, the kind of peace that God gives us is a peace that reigns when nobody complains. Wow, that's a pretty awesome peace. That sounds like real peace, doesn't it, to you? When nobody complains or nobody disagrees. Wow, wow, that would be a really great place to be, wouldn't it? Nobody is hostile. Wow, that's real peace. And nobody misbehaves. All right, so there's some very sophisticated theology from the third century, from origin. In other words, real peace. This is what God accomplishes by faith in, in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, when we are facing our struggles and our challenges together in the power of the Spirit. This is real peace. Throw down the weapons of the devil, Origen exhorts us. Throw them down. You're not fighting against God anymore. You're not fighting against those around you. Lock arms. Stop trying to run away from walls and try to jump over walls in your own strength. Throw down your weapons and put on the power of God. This is our hope. While we were still sinners, stupid, hopeless enemies against God, Christ died for us. All of us together. God showed his love for us. We have been justified. We shall be saved. We were reconciled. We are reconciled. We shall be saved. This is the hope. Verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more. Now. Now. Right now. That we are reconciled, that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So the death of Christ for sinners is not merely a past reality. It's not this sort of justification in the past that has no effect in the present. Christ is not dead. That's Paul's argument. He's not dead. He is alive. And he empowers us to live like that. Into this new reality, he died to reconcile us to God, and much more, we are now reconciled by his life. He continues to pour himself out for us. And even now, as we face impenetrable walls together, we can have peace. Not not some future peace in the new heavens and new earth. That, That will be the ultimate peace. There will be no bickering and fighting and complaining there will be no warfare anymore but it's breaking in now paul says right now peace i'm almost done but i have to quote chris Chris austin before i finish i was going to follow nate's uh formula completely this week because it's a good one but i just can't i can't get around it all right so chris austin says this what what does it mean to have peace What does it mean to have peace? Some say it means that we should not fall out with one another because of disagreements over the law. So Chris Austin says, some some people say what it means to have peace in the church is we we have the same theology. Okay? Sure, there have been disagreements of theology, and the church has 
divided and not had peace because of theology. That's absolutely true. But he goes on to say, but it seems to me, it seems to me that Paul is speaking much more about our current behavior. <laughs> so it's not about theology. It's how we're treating one another. Paul means here that we should stop sinning and not go back to the way we used to live, for that is to make war with God. God has given us power by the Spirit. His love is manifest in us so that we can stop warring against God and with one another. Chrysostom goes on to say, how is this possible? How is this possible? Paul says that not only is it possible, so it's not just about possibility. He says it's reasonable. And here is his reason. For if God reconciled us to himself when we were in open warfare with him, it is surely reasonable that we should be able to remain in a state of reconciliation. If God can reconcile with people who are open warfare against him and he gives us himself, we can make peace. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop this kind of dying and rising peace because of the power of God. So how can we hope against hope? We have to stand in grace together, not alone. We boast in our struggles, in our anguish, in the things that arise up from within us, and the things that assault us from outside of us, we boast in our struggles, we face our anguish, we face the wall head on together, and we endure. It leads to endurance, and we grow, we grow, and on the other side of the broken wall, hope. It is ours in Christ. Against our hopeless hope, a living hope that is alive. And so Paul ends his letter with this exhortation to us. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice. Boast in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Face it. Face it head on. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. More than that, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we stand together by grace in this faith, through him we have now received reconciliation. We have now received, right now, we have now been justified. We have this inheritance now. We have hope and we have peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you please?